All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today I'll be answering your listener questions on a variety of topics, defensive scheme changes, roster moves, and potential coaching changes as well on today's episode. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years. I'm on Twitter at Falcfans and of course the host of this world-renowned Locked On Falcons podcast. And this is your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. And today's episode is our Q&A episode. This is basically the first of probably two Q&As that I will do this week. Perhaps the first of three. Uh, we'll, we'll just sort of play it by ear at this point, uh, depending on how many I get to. But this is basically questions that have been asked over the last week or so that I just didn't have an opportunity to get to because of the holidays and we didn't do our normal Q&A last week. So a couple of these questions are from before Christmas, uh, a couple of days before Christmas. So uh, we'll get to answer those. And then a bunch of you guys sent in questions on Tuesday, which I will probably get to on tomorrow's episode because we'll probably do another Q&A as well then. And depending on if I get through all those questions, you know, that might bleed into Friday. But um, let's jump right into it. Our first question comes from NJ Falcons Ronan at Mave 2124 on Twitter. He asks, if the Falcons were to switch to a primary 3-4 defense, would that hurt Grady Jarrett? Um, I think, yes, it would. If you're asking Grady Jarrett to two gap, I'm sure many of you have heard the terms two gapping versus one gapping. It's a little bit of an antiquated thing because a lot of teams nowadays don't do as much two gapping because everybody basically wants an attacking defense. But what that really refers to is run fits, you know, between the center and the guard, that's called the a gap. On either side of the center, you have two A gaps. You have two B gaps. That's the gap between the guard and the tackle. And then the gap between the tight end and the tackle is the C gap. So typically in defense, every front seven defender is responsible for one or more gaps. And particularly against run plays, that's especially important. In a one gap scheme, a player is responsible for one gap. If the ball goes to your gap, Essentially, it's your job to either make the tackle or at least clog the gap to force the runner to have to choose a different gap. And hopefully the guy that's responsible for that gap will be able to make the tackle and make the play. That is more the attacking style. One of the best ways in a one gap scheme to man your gap is to penetrate it, is to attack that gap. And that's something that can get you into trouble if you're too aggressive in that regard. But Grady Jarrett is a classic one gapping attacking guy that is great at penetrating. He busts out that swim move that it, it's killer that beats guards and centers and he's perfect for that scheme. A two gap scheme is basically a defender is responsible for two gaps. That is more of your classic traditional three, four defense. Um, the Falcons run a traditional four, three under scheme. You know, one version of that four, three scheme blends one gapping and two gapping, but you have one or more guys on your defensive front that are two gapping despite it being a quote unquote one gap scheme. But in a two-gap scheme, a guy is basically going to hold the point of attack, and he's going to wait for a runner to choose one of the two gaps that he's responsible for. That's typically why traditionally 3-4 defenses want bigger defensive linemen. They want defensive ends that are like 6'5", 295 pounds. They want nose tackles that are 330 pounds because you're going to be holding two gaps. You're going to have to basically hold your ground against potential double teams a lot more. 
And that's why 4-3 defenses typically like smaller, quicker guys. They want that 6-2, 285-pound defensive tackle. They want that 6-3, 260-pound defensive end that work better in that more attacking style. But I explain this fully so that you understand that these distinctions don't quite exist like they used to. Everybody is basically running some version of a hybrid scheme nowadays in the NFL that blends both of these principles, one gapping versus two gapping and whatnot. And the Falcons 4-3 under scheme that they run on defense is essentially a hybrid scheme that runs 3-4 like principles in a 4-3 scheme. And if you're the Rams who run a quote-unquote traditional 3-4, it's not really traditional under Wade Phillips because you have a player like Aaron Donald. You're not asking him to two-gap. When Wade Phillips was in Houston, he wasn't asking J.J. Watt to be this two-gapping defensive end. They were one-gapping. They were letting their penetrators penetrate. And that's the same thing with Grady Jarrett. And, you know, I think asking Grady Jarrett in a quote-unquote traditional 3-4 scheme to hold the point of attack would be negating and wasting a lot of his abilities. So... When you, what often you see teams do is they'll run a 3-4, but they run a more attacking version. And what they'll do is instead of having a two-gapping 4-5 technique defensive end, they'll switch that guy to be more of a one-gapping 3-tech. And so you'll have this blend. And that's essentially kind of what the 4-3 under kind of asked to do. And so really the 3-4 versus the 4-3 doesn't really matter that much. You can basically run a 3-4 in the sense of, you know, you have three defensive linemen and two outside linebackers that are standing up as edges. And that's essentially what the Falcons were running at the beginning of the season when they were running sort of their 3-4 slash 5-2 scheme that we talked about quite a bit in the preseason in the beginning of the year. Before, essentially, as the season wore on, they went back to basics and started running a lot more of their 4-3 under scheme. But again, you can essentially take that 4-3 under scheme that the Falcons run, make one of their defensive ends stand up, and essentially you're a 3-4. Um, so most of that distinctions is really superficial nowadays. 3-4 versus 4-3 doesn't really matter all of this to say. So I think basically to answer your question, yes, Grady Jarrett can be a 3-4 guy if you incorporate 4-3 principles, so to speak. So we got more questions on defensive schemes from other listeners as well as potential um, roster moves and talking about some potential cap cuts coming up on today's episode. But I do want to let you guys know before we get there to check out the NBA side of the lockdown podcast network. I know the Atlanta Hawks aren't doing as well as maybe some people hoped, but Brad Rowland, the host of the Lockdown Hawks podcast, is giving you the skinny. And maybe you're not a Hawks fan. Maybe you're a fan of one of the other 29 NBA teams. And, of course, you can find a daily podcast devoted to one of those 29 teams on the Lockdown Podcast Network on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this Lockdown Podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So we got an email question from Joshua Woods. He asked, you mentioned in your rapid reaction when you were talking about Beasley that if the new coach came in and switched to a 3-4, we may get more out of him, more out of someone like him. I'm sorry. Do you have a preference on what type of scheme we run if you could pick? Everyone is trying to recreate Seattle's defense. Has anyone actually succeeded? Do we switch? This is one of those questions that came before Christmas from Joshua. And obviously we didn't make that coaching change that I thought was inevitable. But um, piggybacking on some of the things I just said, I don't think it really matters if we make a switch in defensive schemes. As I sort of said, it's kind of all superficial at this point, but I think with players like Deion Jones and Grady Jarrett being some of the core players that you're looking certainly to keep on this defense for years to come, they definitely fit more in a one gapping scheme. So um, basically you want a scheme that one gaps and you can 
run a one gapping three, four scheme or a one gapping four, three scheme. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think the reason why scheme fit matters for a player like Beasley and why you hear me say things like he's a three, four outside linebacker, despite just spending five minutes telling you that that doesn't really matter that much anymore. Um, is that back in the day, the traditional three, four outside linebacker wasn't the typical edge that just rushes the quarterback 90% of the time back in the day, three, four teams were all about disguising their pressure. And so they would rush three defensive linemen on every play and then one or two or more linebackers on every play. And basically teams offenses didn't know which ones were coming. And that was kind of the value and point of a three, four versus a four, three is it's much easier to disguise your pressure in a three, four than it is in a four, three. And, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers were a, a great version of this, certainly in the Dick LeBeau days, but essentially in that type of scheme, you wanted to have outside linebackers that could also drop in the coverage for those times when you would disguise your pressure and bring the inside linebackers. And so those outside linebackers would sort of drop into coverage rather than sort of what is the quote unquote vanilla version of that scheme where you're just rushing your outside linebackers every time your inside linebackers are always sort of dropping into coverage. Um, so a player like Beasley, you know, even though those distinctions don't really matter as much, he'd work well as an edge in that type of scheme because of his coverage ability. And I know it's controversial to tout Beasley's coverage ability because it's been a popular but false uh, uh, opinion and, and criticism of Beasley that he's not good in coverage. But that is one of the things that he is, you know, particularly relative to other players at his position is one of his strong suits. Certainly, I'm not going to sit here and say he's like, you know, Desmond Trufant or Jalen Ramsey good in coverage, but you know, for an edge rusher, he's one of the better ones. I think that I've seen in quite some time, but you know, to answer your question, has anybody had success running the Seahawks? If it's, this is a narrative that I don't get where this comes from, you know, and this was one of the things I, I think on many uh, Q and A's early in the season, when the Falcons defense was struggling, people were like saying, Oh, like, Offensives have figured out the cover three and the scheme doesn't work anymore. And as we saw in the second half of the season, when the Falcons went back to the basic scheme that they've been running for several years, it does work anymore. It does work. What happens is in the Seahawks defense, this four, three under scheme that the Seahawks quote unquote made famous and several teams have successfully done it. You've seen San Francisco run it this year successfully. You've seen Jacksonville run it successfully. You saw the Chargers run it successfully. You saw the Falcons run it successfully in the second half of the season. It's a zone-heavy scheme, and it's not about the coverage shells. Everybody basically run the same coverages for the last 40 years in the NFL. Cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four. It's not about the coverages. It's about pressure. When you're running zone coverage, you're dropping – typically seven guys into coverage and you're rushing only four guys. If you can get pressure with four guys, it doesn't matter what coverage you're in. Your zone defense is going to work. And that's the thing that the Falcons didn't have for many years and had in the second half of the season. That's was a big catalyst for why their defense made significant gains because they were able to get pressure. Um, and that's why the chargers, when they have Bosa and Ingram, as well as now Tillery, their defense works. Why the 49ers defense suddenly started clicking because of Bosa, uh, Buckner, Armstead, D Ford. Why the, uh, what was the other version? Jacksonville with Saxonville, Campbell and in and all these guys and, and Seattle's defense is still effective. It's not as good as it was at their peak, but their defense at their peak, you know, was a dominant pass with Averill and Bennett and all those guys. And so, 
it's one of those things where like when people say like the Seahawks defense doesn't work anymore, it's like, what are you guys talking about? Like that's, that's one of those ridiculous takes that I'm like, it's like, that's clearly tells me that people don't watch enough football. Cause you clearly see the defense works just fine. If you can get pressure, um, that's been the Falcons issue. So that narrative, I think, you know, people like, Oh, no one's been able like, yeah, no one's been able to re- recreate a historic defense that the Seahawks had back in 2013 to 2014. Just like no one's been able to recreate the Falcons 2016 offense because it was historic. That's the whole point of historic, not to call you out Joshua, but I'm just like ranting about Cause I've heard these takes before, you know, for several months. And it's just like this, this is dumb take. Anyway, I know that's not your take, Joshua, but I just like, it's just one of those things where, man, it's just like, I hear people say these things and I'm like, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. And that's one of those things where it's, it just bothers me, but we still got more questions to come from, um, Andy and and others. Um, and we'll answer those coming up on today's episode. We'll talk a little bit about sort of, we'll, we'll go deep into, their wide receiver position and, and my opinion on why they need more help at the wide receiver position coming up on today's episode. But before we get there, you know, it's not just the NBA side that the lockdown podcast has you covered on. It's a variety of sports, hockey, baseball, college sports, college season, football is, is ending, but basketball is picking up and those shows are going to be daily covering college basketball as we get into conference games coming up here in January and February, all the way through March. So definitely go to lockdownpodcast.com, find your favorite college team, your favorite MLB team, your favorite NHL team. Daily podcast potentially will be for those shows at lockdownpodcast.com. So, Mave two one two four's next question is: What did you think of Bill Barnwell's assessment of the Falcon season, especially the hints on not keeping True and Neil going forward? What Andy here is referring to is an article that Ben B- Bill Barnwell wrote last week on the the lessons learned from six disappointing teams with the Falcons included in that article. The main things that Barnwell was writing about was how the Falcons falsely believed that they had a good defense in their decision to pay Vic Beasley, other questionable cap consuming moves. And they're neglecting the defense in the early rounds uh, of this past year's draft by taking offensive linemen. He also discussed Dirk Cutter not living up to expectations as a play caller and some of the reasons why that was. Um, but during that article, he mentions uh, that Trufon and Neal and implies that they Falcons might decide to part ways with them uh, as part of their ways of trying to address issues on the defense. They really can't get rid of Neil. As I understand it, his fifth year option is now fully guaranteed. It was guaranteed for injury, but because he's hurt coming off that Achilles tear and the way that that works is if he can't pass his year in physical, which is going to come at some point in the next month or so. And I, you know, I don't think he's going to be fully recovered from an Achilles tear from less than six months ago. Uh, You know, unless he's Adrian Peterson or an alien, Um, he's not going to pass that year in physical. And so that injury guarantee will become fully guaranteed. So they can't really cut him. You're not saving any money because of the guaranteed money. Uh, true font could be cut, but you'd have to eat an enormous amount of dead money. I think it's over $10 million just to save like a little shy of $5 million. Um, I think you could, I think if I'm not mistaken, I've said this on the podcast before, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I believe you could restructure true font's contract and save over $6 million. So Cutting him doesn't make a lot of sense. Just restructure his contract. Um, So, you know, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to cut Trufant outright unless he was blocking some younger, better player from emerging, which I don't think is the case. So, 
you know, I think outside of the two games against like Tennessee and Houston, Trufant was pretty lights out for like the other seven or eight games that he played this year. So I don't feel like the Falcons will move on. I think that's, you know, some people think that Trufant's overpaid. Certainly a large percentage of Falcon fans think that. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that that's really in the cards. Smorgasbord9 asks, my question is what OC would be willing to come to Atlanta? Atlanta, if they had let Dirk Cutter go, nobody would take that job. That is likely a one-year gig. That's a good, great point there. You're not really going to get an experienced offensive coordinator, I think, in that situation. I think maybe you get a guy that's been out of the league, similar to what Miami did when they hired Chan Gailey this past week, um, that's trying to get back into the league and takes basically any job that's offered to him. More than likely, your best candidate is going to be some up-and-coming, unproven, but ambitious um, offensive coordinator that wants to cut his teeth in Atlanta before moving on to bigger and better things and doesn't mind the fact that it's a one-year gig. It's basically like I, I'm trying to build my resume. Um, I think then the other only realistic option is that you find someone that's particularly close to Dan Quinn and he's willing, he's basically like me and Dan Quinn are best buddies. And so therefore I'm willing to quote unquote risk the one year because I want to help out a friend um, and, and try to help, you know, potentially try to save Dan Quinn's job because we're, we're great friends. And we know that in this business, particularly with coaching, it's less about what you know and who you know. So people are more than welcome to speculate sort of, you know, some potential candidates that fit all three of those categories. But uh, let's move on to James Roddy's question. I'm curious about the state of our roster and how set are we are at different position groups. What does the wide receiver group look like going into the 2020 season? Are we set with the guys we have now past Julio and really as our one and two, can the Falcons trust the guys behind them or should they look to improve that group in the off season? Is the 2020 group going to look a lot like the 2019 group or are guys like Gage and Hardy up for new contracts? Um, yes, Julio and Ridley are the no, one and two. The question is going to be, do the Falcons get the new, a new number three? And I think based off of everything this team has said about Russell Gage over the last five or so months, I think the answer is no. Um, they really like Russell Gage. So I'm not really expecting them to really push hard to upgrade that position. By the way, Hardy is a free agent. Gage has two more years left on his contract. He signed through the 2021 season, if I'm not mistaken. Gage certainly exceeded my expectations this year. I'll certainly give him that. But then again, my expectations were really low <laughs> with Gage going into the year. Um, I think the Falcons really did find a home for Gage as that slot receiver. I said as much this summer. Um, I like him more as a slot receiver, as sort of a poor man's Muhammad Sanu, than as a backup, as an outside receiver at that X position that Julio plays. Um, I think Gage lived up to that. Um, you know, I think Sanu gave us more as a chain mover on third downs and it was a more productive red zone target than Gage was this past year. But I think you can argue that experience will, you know, getting, building that rapport with Matt Ryan, Gage will continue to improve in those areas. And I think given his athleticism, given his catch radius, um, there's no reason to think that he won't get significantly better as him and Matt Ryan, you know, build that rapport and get work to get on the same page. But here's the rub. I think the Falcons need another outside stretch receiver. I think this became clearly apparent at the end of the season when Ridley got hurt and the Falcons basically moved Julio Jones into the slot and basically funneled their offense entirely through Julio Jones in the slot. Because one of the reasons why they did that is it's harder to bracket slot receivers with the traditional coverage shells that we see in this league. It's harder also to press uh, slot receivers and you're more easily able to get 
free release as a slot receiver. That's part of the reason why I'll never be enthusiastic about Gage or really any slot receivers uh, role, because I think at the end of the day, Julio Jones is a better slot receiver than anybody the Falcons could sign. You know, who is Julio is always going to be better. Even three to four years from now, when Julio is on, you know, on his last legs, potentially what you're going to see is the same thing that teams did with Larry Fitzgerald and Heinz Ward. Uh, and you see across the board with older receivers, they're just going to, the Falcons just going to move Julio to the slot. He's going to do the damage. He's going to be that Salvi route runner and, and be able to separate, even though he doesn't have the same burst and athleticism that he showed earlier in his career, he's still going to be an extremely valuable slot receiver um, in the long term. And so to me, guys like Gage have a low long-term ceiling because basically they're just keeping the spot warm at that slot spot for an old declining Julio. That's going to eventually not to mention Ridley is probably, probably is being, you know, that's me being generous to Russell Gage is definitely a better slot receiver than Russell Gage will ever be. So Russell Gage is always going to be the third best slot receiver at best on the Falcons. That was the same thing with Sanu. He was always the third best slot receiver um, or not always, but certainly once they added Ridley was the third best slot receiver on the team. Um, so it's one of those things. This is why one of, you know, my takes on the Falcons where receivers seem so hot to people is because like players like the Sanus and the gauges, I'm like, you know, like who cares? Like they're all replaceable. And you know, you have a conservative dirt cutter offense being more conservative. You saw this in the final month of the season. They were even more dink and dunk than they were earlier in the season with Ridley sideline. And basically Julio had to live in the slot to maximize his ability. And the lack of an outside threat really hurt this offense and really limited this offense. And so that's why for those of you who are like, why is Aaron going off about the team not keeping Marvin Hall 10 months ago? It's like, it's these type of reasons. Not to sit here and say that Marvin Hall would have single-handedly saved the Falcons. He's not, to, you know, this is why I have, you know, that nostalgic adoration for guys like Algic Robinson and Taylor Gabriel because they provide that ability as an outside stretch receiver that makes it harder for defenses to defend you. And so I know some of you are like, well, what about Alameda Zacchaeus? Certainly compared to the Russell Gages and the Christian Blakes of the world, I think Zacchaeus is much closer to that type of player. But here's the problem with Alameda Zacchaeus. He really struggled to beat press coverage this year. And that's going to be a work in progress. And you got to remember Zacchaeus in college at UVA was strictly kind of a slot receiver and rarely saw press. So this is new to him. He's also a five foot eight, 190 pound wide receiver. That also contributes to why he struggled against the press. Now you're saying, well, Taylor Gabriel was the same size. He was on the outside, but Taylor Gabriel also struggled against press. And here's the key difference between Taylor Gabriel and Alameda Zacchaeus. They're similar, but here's the key difference. Taylor Gabriel had sub four, three speed. Marvin Hall is not much bigger than either one of those guys also had sub four, three speed. What did Zacchaeus run? He ran at four, four, nine. Zacchaeus is fast, right? He's probably plays a little faster than that. He's probably like closer to four, four, five. But that type of speed isn't so fast that he's going to outrun the vast majority of starting cornerbacks. See, the vast majority of starting cornerbacks, because cornerbacks typically that are starters are drafted in the first or second rounds, at least certainly on the outside. Um, they run four four five. You're not going to get drafted that high if you don't run a sub four five forty. So Zacchaeus doesn't have speed, whether he runs a four four five or four four nine that is significantly greater than what your quote unquote average outside starting corner is going to be. And so when you have a smaller deep threat, 
like a Gabriel, like a Zacchaeus, like a Marvin Hall that struggles against press, you need to run a 4-2. You need to run a 4-3 because when you face the starting cornerbacks that are running the 4-4s and the 4-5s, you know, they're going to be less inclined to press those guys because if they don't get the jam at the line of scrimmage, that guy's gone. There's no physically physical possible way that that guy can catch up with that receiver. And so what they do is they back up seven to 10 yards and say, well, I'm not going to press this guy because I'm scared of his speed. And the thing about gauge, the thing about Zacchaeus, they're fast, but they don't have that type of speed that scares defensive coordinators that scares cornerbacks that are say, Oh crap, I need to back off seven to 10 yards because this guy is potentially going to roast me. Okay. And so that's not to sit here and write off Zacchaeus um, because a guy like Ridley is not a super burner. He runs like a four, four um, isn't the biggest, strongest guy, but what really does he's, he's so quick that he's able to avoid the jam right now. Could Zacchaeus become that type of player? Absolutely. But he's not there yet. And personally, I'm not convinced, maybe others are, that he'll ever get there. So for me, at least, I say go get the guy that already is that guy and your problem is solved. And then if Zacchaeus does get there eventually, then guess what? You just have more good receivers that you can, you know, expand your offense and be this really potent offense. So, you know, it's now having five good receivers instead of four, six good receivers instead of six or instead of five. So that to me is the strategy behind it. That's why I continue to sit here and say, we need to get a wide receiver. We need to get add more to the wide receiver position. But, you know, in the end, I don't think the Falcons are going to make that much of a priority if a priority at all, if they do wind up adding a wide receiver in this draft, it's probably going to be a day three guy that probably is going to be destined to be more of a special teams guy. If, if I'm guessing sitting here today. So James Roddy has another question. He says, what is a plan with the left guard position, assuming Lindstrom and McGarry stay on the right side? And are we stuck with Brown and Carpenter there next year? So I won't go as deep into that in this position as I did with the wide receiver group. But my guess is I think Brown and Carpenter will be back. They'll be back to compete at the left guard position. Maybe the Falcons shop one of those guys and try to move on from them. Potentially the guy that loses camp competition. Maybe they try to shop one of those guys to get a future late round draft pick on, on draft day. I know people are going to shrug at those guys returning. Um, I thought Brown was mostly solid for the first eight or so games. I think his play t- took a downturn after the bye. Maybe that was the cumulative effect of the injuries that he had been nagging him throughout the early part of the season. Um, I know Carpenter would dealt with a hip injury through most of the summer and missed most of the time there. You know, I thought, He was a little stiff this year. I don't know if that was the hip injury or was that just age catching up to him. But I think another year, maybe some adjustments made to the blocking scheme, better continuity, those guys being healthier. You can expect those guys to play better, maybe not like significantly better, um, but you're just kind of looking for league average play from those guys. If you can get improved play from Mac Lindstrom and McGarry um, next year, if Jake is able to maintain his current level of play, that's all you really need is league average play from league average starter play from that left guard position. Um, you know, Schweitzer is a free agent. My expectation is that he will walk. I think he could certainly come back for the right price, but I don't know if the Falcons after spending all the money on Brown and Carpenter last all season are going to now pay Schweitzer to basically starting guard money. Um, but maybe if he's willing to accept considerably cheaper than that, then I think the Falcons can bring him back. You also have the option of, of having Matt Gano and have him compete there. In addition to being sort of serving that role as a swing tackle, then your fourth option, presumably um, is going to be your fifth option. If you count Schweitzer as one of those options is to look for the draft 
to add another interior offensive lineman. I think you're going to, you know, particularly if Schweitzer walks, you're going to be looking for a backup center that you can certainly peg as Alex Mack's eventual successor, probably in 2021. But if that guy has the sort of versatility that you want, that he could come in and compete and push Brown, Carpenter, Gano, whoever, as the starting left guard, that would be ideal. You know, who that guy is in this year's draft class, I have no idea. But in last year's draft class, there were two candidates. You had guys like Elton Jenkins, who had a really solid year for the Packers at left guard, played center in college. Dalton Risner also dabbled as a center at Kansas State, was drafted by the Broncos, I think played right guard for them uh, this past year. It was pretty solid as well. Those are two guys that, you know, those types of players that you're sort of looking for. Typically, you know, because those both Jenkins and, and, and Reisner were taken in round two, I think that's sort of something that you could potentially target for the Falcons on day two of of this year's draft. So our last question comes from Joshua Woods. He asks, what happened to Justin Hardy? There are, for a while, he was a great fourth option, but he's getting barely any looks now. Are the younger guys better or was he a Shanahan guy or what? This leads me to a bigger question. Is this in this business, do you think success has more to do with timing slash coaching slash scheme than talent? It seems like all these guys are freak athletes, but put in their right situation, they really excel. There have been players who were killing it and go to another team and they're never heard of again. Um, specifically for Justin Hardy, I think, you know, it, it sort of it passed him by. You know, they signed Sanu and basically for three years, Sanu basically filled the exact same role that I think Shanahan envisioned for Hardy that Hardy himself played in the back half of the 2015 season when Leonard Hankerson got hurt. Um, and then once the team moved on from Sanu this past year, they had young guys like Blake and Gage and Zacchaeus. They knew what Hardy was at that point, but they wanted to see what those other young guys were. And they were more invested, more interested in developing those three younger guys to see sort of to build towards the future than necessarily giving Hardy the opportunity that I personally think. And I think others thought he potentially deserved earlier in his career. So Hardy kind of took a backseat in that regard. I don't think that's a reflection on Hardy's limitations or anything. I just think circumstances sort of, um, you know, limited him. And I think, you know, my personal opinion, I think he kind of got a raw deal over the last, you know, five years here in Atlanta um, because of circumstances, bad luck, if you want to say it. Um, but I think to answer that your question, I think the easy answer is it is a combination of timing, coaching scheme, as well as talent as why players succeed and or fail specifically for someone like a Hardy. I think he had more than enough talent to potentially develop into an Adam Humphreys type of slot receiver for the Falcons, but due to timing, due to coaching, um, you know, depending on whether or not you think that Raheem Morris was the right guy to get the most out of him versus Terry Robisky, who was the coach for him in his first year back in 2015, had Robisky been able to stick around, you know, you look at the scheme shifts with all the changes with the offensive coordinator, you didn't get the continuity. So a new guy would come in, maybe he didn't have as much confidence as Hardy as he maybe had in other guys, all those very variables, you know, affected it. You know, maybe if Shanahan had stuck it around, maybe if the team hadn't signed Sanu, you know, you would have seen Hardy blossom into sort of being that quote unquote quality number two that so many people believe Sanu to be, uh, that I don't, but, um, you know, maybe that would have happened, uh, in an alternate universe. And so I think that, you know, can often apply to 
all 1800 plus players that are in the NFL as well. And sort of, you know, the varying degrees of timing versus coaching versus talent versus scheme, all that sort of stuff, you know, you adjust on the player by player basis. But I certainly think all of those factors, you know, led to some, you know, Hardy in particular, not necessarily emerging. So appreciate everybody for all their questions that they asked. Uh, We'll get to more on tomorrow's episode. And if you're wondering how can I send in my own questions, of course you can do so via email like Joshua and James did. Uh, That is locked on Falcons at mail.com is the email address for the show. Um, You can do like Andy did Mave two one two four on Twitter and send them in via Twitter locked on Falcons. Of course, the Facebook page is still out there for those of you that don't do Twitter, but do Facebook uh, locked on Falcons name of the page there. So again, appreciate you guys. We're going to do another Q and a tomorrow to get the questions that people asked on Tuesday. But if you guys keep pumping in questions, you know, we'll just continue to answer questions as we go. You know, we got to fill this off season content as we go. So I hope you guys appreciate it. You know, first show of 2020, enjoy the new year. Um, but yeah, you can also provide your feedback on what you want to see on the lockdown Falcons podcast in 2020 via those, uh, platforms and those email addresses as well. So, uh, send those in, send in me your feedback, send in your suggestions, send in your comments. Uh, and of course rate us on iTunes, you know, give us five star reviews that helps, you know, signal boost the show as well. So there you guys have it until then you are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.